What does it mean to be an Indian woman living in New Zealand? In this episode, Maddie shares with us her experiences and reflections on racism and othering, as well as the power of history in shaping the present. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Maddie. My full name's Madhvi Manchi. My family's always called me Maddie since I've been 11. That's the name I respond to the most. I'll come back to why I'm saying this, but otherwise I'm an Indian woman. I identify as cisgender. My pronouns are she, her. In India, I'm quite a mixed bag. My parents both come from the same language community or state, but my parents and my grandparents and on my maternal side, my great grandparents have migrated across the country. So I haven't actually grown up in the state that my ancestors come from in a way. My parents haven't grown up really in the state that we come from. So that's what I mean by a mixed bag. We kind of migrated quite a bit internally. So my maternal great-grandparents, for example, have ties to a state called West Bengal, which is not in the west of the country. It's tending northeast of the country. Otherwise, we trace back to a region called Andhra Pradesh, which is the southeast. My parents lived in a state called Tamil Nadu. They grew up there mostly, which is again southeast. And then they moved and I grew up in a city called Bangalore, which is again somewhere around the Deccan Plateau, so somewhere southwest. So that's kind of where my mixed bagness comes, I guess. (laughs) So I find it hard when even Indians ask me, where are you from, really? So I speak the language of my ancestors. I speak the language of this city I grew up in. I speak Hindi. I cannot speak Bengali at all. My family from that side can. But, you know, my mom has strong ties to that place. And it's always a special place, I guess. Kolkata, the capital city there, is quite a strong connection there family-wise. And I keep saying language community because the states in India are organized by language, post-independence. In terms of othering, I don't know if I've always felt othered, not in a negative sense always, but you just know because you are in a state that doesn't speak that language, you know, and because they're so strongly organized along language in India, it's very obvious. That's not your the place I was growing up in wasn't the language that my family spoke. So, for example, my parents made the strategic decision in my sister and my childhood to make sure we learned Hindi because that's available across. And my dad was traveling a lot with work. So I guess it would have been easy to know Hindi anywhere, pretty much. So that's one of the ways it trickles down into my life, I guess. And the fact that Hindi is the one Indian language I know to read, speak and read. And I don't know the others very much. I can speak them to varying fluencies, but I don't know how to read and write. My, I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed of with this. I don't know how to read and write my mother tongue. So I can speak it. But yeah, uh, I guess there's a slight loss of that for, you know, for various reasons. I think I see mostly the positives. I see like a huge amalgamation of a whole lot of things that comes through. Like there'll be something that I, for example, there's a dish or two that I love. And then I would have always assumed growing up that it's from our community. But then my mom would be like, no, it's actually from West Bengal or it's actually like an influence of living in the borders sort of thing. Um, 
In terms of just not knowing, like, I don't know how to answer the question where I'm from. It's simply because of those linguistic sort of differences that are very obvious on a daily level. And I guess the state I lived in also went through a bit of, and a lot of states in India have gone through this. They've gone through a bit of the regional identity sort of strengthening movement. So I guess when things like that come up, there are things where you will be questioned about, but you're not really from here. So when I was young and I didn't know better, my reaction instinct deeply would be, but I've lived here all, nearly all my life, you know. So I guess you can see those connections to racism in a sense or being an immigrant in lands that are not necessarily where you're born. Um, so I guess there has been some of those experiences. They've been a bit subtle. It'll be things like picking up public transport. And by public transport, I don't mean buses. I mean um taxis or we have something like the tuk-tuks which is the auto rickshaws so it's in those interactions for example they used to be quite organized i remember as a young person and they were quite a big part of that movement that you know strengthening their regional identity sort of thing so that's why you'd sort of get a lot of people going but you're not from here and i'm not the only one who's experienced this and i'm someone who dare to claim some sort of a right to be there because I've grown up there. They do this with anyone who'd even recently migrated to that state. So they'll be like, oh, you don't speak the language, you know, we're not going to give you, we're not going to give you rights sort of thing. Um, I've seen some of this. I think I moved away or I saw glimpses of it. I don't know how I became insulated from it at some point. I did, uh, probably because I stopped taking public transport for a bit. That probably explains it, but... I think that's my strongest sort of memory of the othering. But otherwise, I think every time I've gone back to try and explore some of that, it's just been fascinating that they've become such an integral part of my life, all of these different places I identify with, that it just feels like one thing. And it surprises me every time I discover that it's not actually from... <laughs> where I thought it was and that's always wonderful I think it leaves me in awe of the journeys like my family's had it leaves me in awe of everything that we've integrated into our lives and I just simply like the joy it brings. Maddie's history is also shaped by something else remnants of the British Empire. The state that my parents grew up in was a presidency under the British. It was the Madras presidency. And at some point, there were bits of my ancestral state. There were bits of the place I now grew up in. They were all combined into that one presidency. And at some point when the states were being organized, and I could be getting this story completely wrong. I have to go back and check with my parents now. But I think at some point when the state lines were redrawn, my granddad actually made it mine. Dad's dad made a decision to stay back at whatever place because his job kept him there. But I also imagine that there was a lot of that stuff that might have influenced where we ended up, which side of the borders we ended up on, if you wish. And that's something I hadn't thought of or really introspected on, I guess, till I got here. And I was having these amazing conversations on colonialism. And I'm like, hang on. <laughs> The British redrew a lot of our lines. Uh, you know, they organized us very differently at some point, And we went back and redrew them in 56, I think, 1956 it was. 
And to date, I think there's two or three states that I strongly connect with that have their own state days, like the way we um, have, I know, I guess there's a lot of countries where each province has its own formation day and things like that. So the state I live in, the state I identify with, uh, two or three of them have state formation days. So yeah, that's another sort of layer, I guess, that I'd started to think about, you know, when I got here to try and understand that part of myself. After India, Maddie moved to New Zealand. She would live in Christchurch in Auckland, two cities in the South and North, respectively. There, she would start seeing and experiencing things that would open her eyes to different aspects of her identity. I think the interesting thing about introducing myself as Maddie within New Zealand is a lot of people will come back and say, no, no, we want to learn how to say your full name right. And I'm always caught in this really weird, awkward place because I'm going, my friends call me Maddie, my mom calls me Maddie, my family, extended family calls me Maddie. It's a name I prefer. You're not going to offend me, especially if the person is white. I'm like, you're not going to offend me by not saying my full name. It's fine. (laughs) This is what I prefer. But I guess a lot of people... Like I've noticed in emails and things, they'll insist on using my full name. And I let it slide when it's professional context. I'm like, okay, maybe they have a specific etiquette or a decorum they want to hang by. um, And they want to retain that sense of formality, which is fine. But I think that's always been an interesting or awkward kind of transition, which is not to say people haven't butchered my names, which is not to say that things haven't happened around it. I remember clearly we were, my husband and I were going off on a tour bus to go look at some vineyards here. And the tour bus driver, I put in for whatever reason on the invoice, my full name. And he looked at it and his first thought was, oh, this person, this person, this person, he was doing a head count of the people in the bus. And he said, he'd started to say my name and then he said, oh, the name that I can't pronounce. Or I think he said it was an unpronounceable name. I'm like, it's okay. You can call me Maddie. That's easier. I'm fine with that. And then he insisted on calling me unpronounceable name for the rest of the trip. (laughs) And I, of course, was really hopping mad at that point because I'm like I gave you an option to yeah I made it I made your life easy (laughs) I tried and you still insist on not wanting to learn and I think the most interesting part was to sort of observe other there was a group of white women at the back of that bus and they actually came and apologized to me on behalf of the man they didn't know and their first thing was not everyone in New Zealand is like this (laughs) I'm like That's a whole other debate in itself, whether New Zealand has racism or not. But I think that was really interesting. I don't know what to call it. Um, Guilt. (laughs) It's interesting that they felt guilt. It's interesting they felt like they had to defend someone they had no, or a whole country without them knowing what my experience of it in general was. And I think it's interesting they... They were trying to placate me and put me in a very specific position, almost like, I guess I find it interesting that they thought that I was new to the country. They'd assumed I was new to the country. And I think that's a very interesting assumption to make. I don't think anyone ever actually came around or assumed that I was born there or I've been here all my life. I think that was that's a very interesting assumption to make. And I think that's why their reaction is interesting, just in terms of that incident. 
And I think this is also sort of, this irritates me mildly as well. Like a lot of people will just not make the effort of actually understanding how to say my name. And so many of us who've moved around the world come from language traditions that may be very orally based. They don't have written scripts. And so saying things the way they're meant to be pronounced is very important because in oral cultures, the slightest bubble that's changed changes the meaning of a word. And I think a lot of people also forget that. There's also sort of a, a dominance of, if you like, I don't know the correct word. Um, there's a, uh, I guess I'll go with dominance. There's a dominance of the written script and there's an assumption that everything has a written script. Whereas a lot of languages have had to acquire written scripts because of colonization or were given or forced written scripts because of colonization. So a lot of people forget that that's why pronunciation is important. A lot of us come from languages that didn't have them. And the way you said things are really, really important. They do change meaning. And I think my, um, I'm in New Zealand. So that point gets driven home for me every single time I try and learn to say a Maori language word because Māori has a strong oral tradition in my understanding and the scripts came later, which is why the pronunciation of those words are very important because that slight change of bubble will mean you're saying something very different. And that gets driven home for me every time. I think I've realized the importance of that for our names as well, you know, um, and so many people have had to change their names because of it. Next to her name, Maddie shares other aspects of her daily life where questions around her identity and feelings of belonging are being challenged. Rugby is a huge sport in New Zealand. We love rugby. It's how probably cricket is for India or football is to a lot of European nations and South American nations. Um, my husband and I had gone out with another couple of our friends to go watch a rugby match like you do in a sports bar and we sort of were on the streets late and I think it was the All Blacks versus England and we'd enjoyed it we'd cheered for the All Blacks we'd walked out onto the streets All Blacks had won and I think there was some busy intersection where we'd all had a little bit to drink and my husband basically saw an English fan walk by and all my husband said was too bad, mate. Good luck next time. That's all he'd said. My husband had walked off. He hadn't even heard what the guy said next because unfortunately for him or whatever, I was right behind when he turned around and he said, um, what did he say? I can't remember the exact words, but he said um, something to the effect of, I can't remember the exact words. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but And those were very powerful words. It's sad that I can't remember them. I think he said, do you even belong here? Or almost as if he questioned our right to talk about rugby. And that's an assumption, right? It's like saying someone who looks like you shouldn't be talking about rugby. Leave it to the white kiwi. And I froze and I gave him a death stare, basically, because I couldn't do much else because I was shocked with what he said. He's like, oh, do you even belong here? Like, how dare you? Who do you even belong here? Uh, almost as if. And I realized later, if it was a cricket match, that guy wouldn't have dared to turn around and say anything. And that was the thought that crossed my mind. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. But if it was an India playing England match, he wouldn't have dared to turn around and say anything. Probably he would have gotten ugly in other ways because everyone had alcohol in them. But then, you know, it's like someone like me or my husband had no right to talk about rugby. 
I almost couldn't watch a rugby match for a while after that because it left such a sour taste in my mouth. And I realized how strongly sort of national identities were tied to it. I didn't realize there was an element of race. Now you hear of incidents from France and football, for example, and all of the French footballers who are of African descent, you hear of all of that. But then I guess I'd seen it play out for the first time here. And when you experience something for yourself, it's always a shock, right? It's one thing to hear of things that happen that don't happen to you. And it's another thing when it happens to you. And for the first time, I was like, but I do belong here. If I like that sport, I should be able to say something about it. It shouldn't matter to you how I look. I should be able to say something about rugby because I am from here. And I guess it was the first time I saw the when I want to enforce my belonging here. And yeah, the sports stuff is always, I mean, India has a whole history with Pakistan, if you're familiar with that, and there's cricket matches. So there's, there's a whole, that's a whole other, whole other conversation probably three conversations <laughs> if you want to go into the history of cricket matches between India and Pakistan but it just left me stunned I guess it left me in a place where I just didn't want to watch Agni and I couldn't tell I did a bit of an autoethnographic piece for a conference and that's that's what I used to process the whole thing I couldn't process it till then it just left me numb it left me angry and this is an interesting this is the thing that may interest you so there are people, when there's a cricket match between New Zealand and India, oh my God. The first question is, guys, who are you supporting? From family in India or friends in India, like who are you supporting? So I've started to take to, I'm going to win either ways. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy the game. First of all, cricket's not a game I really terribly enjoy, but I've really just taken to, I'm going to win no matter what. And that's amazing. That's not a situation everyone gets to be in. So I'm like, you know, that's the only way to get out of a seeming catch-22. So that's a very interesting sort of, I guess, questioning of our identities from the homeland, if you wish. And that's a whole other different thing you have to deal with in your head now, because your belongings kind of, I guess not questioned or I suppose questioned in an indirect sort of way. I think that's also interesting. And if you look at the comedy scene in India, there's a whole running theme of non-resident Indians, basically. So it's also that it's when you've lived this long away, it's about then being questioned about that side of your identity. And there's a lot of Indians have aspirations to have the citizenship and the passport of the country they move to. So it's a very interesting sort of, I guess, thing to deal with from the other side, if you will, a side that you wouldn't expect, where you then get questioned about forgetting stuff or you're too westernized, quote unquote, or, you know, you lost touch with practices there or whatever or your loyalties have changed and stuff like that and i think it comes out in sport very interestingly because this is something we always get asked maddie has been living in new zealand for almost 10 years she reflects upon the various experiences she went through thus far and how they are affected by the histories we learn I'm sure this is not unique to me. I'm sure anyone who speaks anything other than English and looks a certain way would have had this. But the number of times people have said to me, oh, but your English is really good. I'm like, 
do you not know who colonized us? <laughs> and I think people come at that question from a lot of different assumptions. I probably don't sound like I have, I think I have a heavy Indian accent and I sort of manage my accent quite a bit that I've realized that I do. So the way I enunciate stuff will sometimes change with the crowd. It's it's just a basic need to get communication going, right? But I think some of the people come from the assumption that I don't have a very heavy Indian language sounding accent sometimes, or they can't place me. It doesn't sound, I don't know what the word is. It doesn't sound very typically Indian or like Apu from, what is that, Simpsons. It's kind of, I don't, maybe I don't always sound like that. But I think the thing, and this is a thing that really speaks a lot to the bubbles that a lot of people live in. And the other thing I was going to share with you is when Queen Elizabeth died. I was amazed at the number of people here, English people. When I say English people, people from the UK who had zero idea about the Kohinoor or the diamond within the Queen's crown and the colonial history behind it. And the people's lack of understanding of why maybe it was a lot of mixed emotions when she passed away. And I was astounded by the lack of knowledge. And then it struck me just what kind of histories are being taught in different places. So a whole 150, 200 years were erased in some, some other nation, or it was told differently. I mean, I couldn't make sense of it. And I was just angry for a long time till I realized they were just getting a different version of history. And I'm like, okay, it's probably where questions like, but your English is so good comes from, or remarks like that come from. And this is something I've I've noticed and I've thought about this. So when we talk about New Zealand, um, first of all, in India, a lot of people can't differentiate between Australia and New Zealand. I guess that's a mistake a lot of people make. <laughs> but even New Zealand's always sold as a white country, if you know what I mean. And I land on these shores and I go, there's a whole culture and community of people here or communities of people here who are indigenous to this land. And they're completely invisible to the rest of the world. And that's a very sad thing. I had no idea. I just knew that New Zealand was a territory. There was, an, there was a part of the British Empire. I had no clue. My imagination in New Zealand was always, it's like the US. There's a lot of white people, <laughs> except for San Jose, I guess, where there's a lot of Indians now, but, or, or you know, wherever I'm, I'm I'm going into bad stereotypes, but that's the, that's the kind of, I guess, the image that's sold as this Western, it's not really Western, but you know, Western or global North, whatever you want to call it, nation of white people, but it's not. And I felt like a deep sense of grief, I guess, to, to realize that there's a whole set of people who made invisible in how New Zealand's projected around the world. Like that's not, that's not done, you know, and, and. Yeah, I had to really sort of really do a 180 on how I saw and understood. And I think that's where it becomes very obvious the kind of issues that this country grapples with. Maddie shares how her understanding of racism has evolved over time. My understanding of racism, and I'm going to also say the word colorism. I don't know. It's a word that's been thrown around. That's the one that comes to mind right now. I guess... In India, there's all, while I lived in India, there's always this, people of fairer complexion are held to a different standard than people who are of a darker complexion within our own communities. 
and I guess I had a very abstract understanding of racism as someone discriminating against me or being mean to me just because I looked a certain color. It was a very abstract thing. But I think it's shifted a lot more since living here because I can see very definite ties to colonialism. And it still stays that way. But I guess um, I've had to force myself to step back and kind of go, yes, there is a template or there's the, I don't know what the words are. Um, I guess there's there's the average white person who will always kind of go, oh, that white person said whatever. But I guess now I'm, I've had to step back also and kind of go, but this person's maybe Irish or maybe Scottish or maybe American. And I have to really try and understand where that stuff that's coming out their mouth is coming from. So if there's a the very obvious form of racism where they're like, basically, oh, where are you really from more? go back to where you came from or, you know, do you have the right to even say this stuff? Those are kind of very obvious. But I think the more nuanced interactions around race, stuff like, uh, I don't know, I guess some of the other examples that I've given, I've had to really take a step step back. So if an American's asking me how, how come your English is so good, I've realized I've started to hold them to a very different, I come at that from a very different place as opposed to when someone from England asks me that question. <laughs> I don't know if it's answering what racism means to me. I guess I'm trying to say that I understand at some deep level it is that discrimination of or treating me as less than human because I look a certain way. But I guess it's become more complex and it's not become easy. If anything, it's become murky. I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think this is the interesting thing about New Zealand being bicultural. And I've had this conversation with other Indians where they've said we've had other, for example, unfortunately, they might have experienced a Maori person say, oh, go back to where you came from, right? I'm like, is that racism? And for a while, I'm like, no, that's not racism. That's xenophobia. And then I had to backtrack and kind of go, but people of color can be racist as well. And I think a lot of that's lost because we don't know how to make sense of that experience. Like there are incidents coming from India where we've mistreated African national students and that's racism. <laughs> you know, you can't call it anything else other than that. That is racism. Or perhaps there is an element of xenophobia there because I don't know. But I think there's like a way that when people of color become racist and we can be racist, I think we need to accept that. Against the background of her experiences, Maddie shares what she thinks it means to be anti-racist. It's a bit tough, isn't it? Because when you look a certain way, you almost, it's sort of a default mode sometimes because it's survival. But for me, it's this, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's caste, which is a huge thing in India, or religion, we have our differences. And those differences doesn't give anyone a right to treat someone else as less than human. That's the one basic thing that we all are. We're all human. And that means that that person needs to be afforded a certain dignity and a certain level of rights. Everything else can come later. Everything else that makes us different can come later. But when you meet someone, you have to engage with that person as a human being first. 
as a living breathing human being who is very much the same as you or the next person they have a heart that beats they have basic physical processes they have very similar emotions these are not different those are very basic things you have to engage with that person on that level and for me i guess my thing with anti racism is if there's anything that's whether it's anti racism or and you know any sort of form of discrimination i will question any world view that's telling me not to treat someone as human first there's something that needs to be fundamentally introspected on if something saying if some world view is kind of going no but they're not worthy of it just because of this or you can go down to very heinous kind of acts just on that i think it's that it's that you can't you, i i can't i've struggled with my religious beliefs i've struggled with a lot of my different kind of beliefs about things the second i've sat down to think and something like religion and stuff is very it's like the fabric of your growing up right it's kind of breaking down the fundamental blocks of your social identity i've had to sit down and go but something in here somewhere along the way said i shouldn't treat this person as a human being because of this because of a factor that's not in their control one and two because it doesn't matter because underneath it we're all the same we need to introspect and break down and think about whether it's worthy holding on to those views and i guess that's the basis of my anti racist kind of way of being in the world if you will you just need to treat someone as a human being first then we can talk about all the wonderful things that make us different and that flip needs to happen you can find more information about the history of new zealand and india as well as other articles books and videos maddie recommends people to take a look at our racism in our website www.ourcontext.org you can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in english french german and italian if you have a personal story to share reach out to us on our website instagram or twitter you can find us by typing in #our_racism this is boomy and #racism see you next month on July 5th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. This podcast is powered by the Competence Center for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of St. Gallen. A warm thank you to Maddie for her invaluable time and energy in sharing with us her experiences and important reflections on this issue.